Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Music, Money, and Life podcast. I have a really good episode for you guys today. I'm really excited about this uh, particular podcast. First, though, really quick before we get started, the California Dreaming Retreat is taking place on September 16th and 17th in Tustin, California, which is about 40 minutes south of Hollywood and 15 minutes north of Laguna Beach. If you'd like to spend two full days with myself, my producer, Gary Gray, we have the music supervisor, Aaron Dillon, with us, as well as Eddie Gray, who's a songwriter and composer who's doing really well with licensing. If you'd like to spend two full days with us and learn all about music production, specifically as it relates to music licensing and also how to pitch your tracks to music supervisors, head to CaliforniaDreamingRetreat.com. We have just a few spots left for the 16th and 17th. The 23rd and 24th is sold out. Okay, with that out of the way, in today's episode of Music, Money, and Life, I'm speaking with Jimmy Dunn. Jimmy Dunn is a songwriter and composer who has done an incredible amount of work in the TV and film licensing space, as well as writing for other artists. As a hit songwriter, he's landed number one songs across pop, country, R&B, and adult contemporary charts, with songs recorded on 28 million records around the globe. Accolades include songs on Grammy-winning records, Emmys, CMA Awards, BMI Songwriting and Publisher Awards, NARM's Song of the Year Award, as well as winning a Juno Song of the Year Award. Jimmy Dunn has amassed songs, themes, and scores in over 1,500 television shows playing around the planet, including songs and scores in a number of blockbuster movies. Jimmy Dunn has been a songwriter and music producer for many of ABC and Paramount Pictures' most successful hit series. He's written songs for artists including Kenny Rogers, Whitney Houston, Janet Jackson, Take Six, Anne Murray, and many, many more. He's had songs in films like Pretty Women, Princess Diaries, Two, Nothing in Common, Fame, Dear God, Heart Like a Wheel, Exit to Eden, Fatal Attraction, Mother's Day, and again, many more. And most importantly, he's a really nice and gracious guy. Without further ado, here's my conversation with the songwriter Jimmy Dunn. everybody welcome to yet another episode of the music money and life podcast i'm uh really excited about today's guest i'm really excited to be speaking with the songwriter and pianist and composer jimmy jimmy dunn jimmy how are you i'm terrific thank you aaron for having me um on your fabulous podcast well i'm i'm so excited to speak with you today and to be honest i'm 
I'm a little nervous. I'm I'm looking at your bio and you've done so much, you know, in in your career that I'm not I'm not quite sure where to start. So I thought I would just start. I'll I'll kind of dive in and tell people a little bit about your background, and you can kind of take it from there. But you've written songs for Whitney Houston, Kenny Rogers, Take Six, Janet Jackson, Loverboy, Jermaine Jackson, Anne Murray, uh, Dave Loggins. You've written music for films like Pretty Women, Princess Diaries, Nothing in Common, Fame, Heart Like a Wheel, Exit to Eden. Um, and this was really cool. The, your collective catalog of music has been heard or watched over 200 billion times. That's a lot of... Uh, it's a lot of views and a lot of a lot of listens. Uh, well, it's a, a lot of that is the power of television too, which you know is pretty extraordinary. Once you, you know, with it's, so that's been that's been great. That's really cool. So, so when did you? You've obviously been at this a long time. When did you actually start working in the music business and start writing music? Well, I you know I, I think a lot of uh, songwriters and and. Uh, you know, that have been at any doing this. I started as a kid writing songs. I kind of always knew I wanted to do this. I went to school actually in Kentucky, um, and uh, and then um, <coughs> as somebody born and raised in Chicago, after college days, drove out to California, and um, uh, and I uh, I ended up getting I got a job on Happy Days um, on the television show, yeah. and then. Uh, and then with that, it was a fabulous experience, and had the 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 privilege of uh, having a mentor for life, uh, Gary Marshall, who was a, a producer at the time of, yeah. of, of that show and some sure. other shows of Paramount. Um, and then in doing it, um, uh, I I was a I was a writer and producer on on that show, and then um, produced some other pilots and shows at Paramount as well. Um, and for ABC, and but and you know, it was just an amazing opportunity because I got to kind of um, uh, stick my head in the door of uh, lots of places at that age and time that I probably didn't know business doing, and um, but it, but especially in the music world at Paramount, and uh, I was sort of the uh, the kid at Paramount that uh, in his twenties that that knew a little something about songwriting and producing, and with it had an opportunity for a bunch of those shows at Paramount at the time to to sort of have to to uh be the the producer on and and songwriter on a whole lot of so- shows and uh series at Paramount and um and then uh with 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 that while that was going on uh I was lucky to have a couple breaks in the music world um it was a hit with um, with Ann Murray on the countryside with uh, the song "Nobody Loves Me Like You Do." That I've been uh, fortunate with her that uh, that uh, did really well um, uh, uh, with her, and actually she sang that with Dave Loggins, and it was a number one for her. And yeah, uh, and Whitney Houston um, actually covered that same song on the pop, on a pop record. I mean, on her record on the pop side of the fence, and so. It was kind of uh, that song was traversing the two worlds of country and pop music, and uh, and then with that I sort of uh, uh, leaned more on the on the music side of the world, and then since then that was been really most of my life has been 
in the songwriting and and in you know songwriting world, uh, both in film and TV, and then uh, and then on about the last ten years, I started a company, Inspire Entertainment, uh, that's in, that's at InspireEntertainment.com, and that's been a company focused on uh, music and branding, and the fortunately with that, we kind of caught it at the right time when uh, all of that was uh, kind of the buzz was in the air about uh, the music and branding and with the uh, demise of, of CD sales and the, the rise of, of uh, streaming. And, and it's, uh, it's been a positive thing, and I think a positive thing for uh, songwriters and, and just music of all kinds to find new homes and new avenues to, you know, to express music through uh, you know, tapping into the worlds of, of corporations and brands, and that's been lots of fun. And so I've pretty much had, uh, you know, kind of a parallel life in the last decade of both uh, my activities on the songwriting and creative side, and then also the fun of of um, of running a brand, this branding and and uh, music company that, that deals with uh, you know with the, with that side of the fence. That that's really cool stuff. So I def, I want to get into that. I want to get into Inspire. I want to get into the work you're doing there. But I wanted to before we jump into that, I kind of wanted to back up, and I'm just sort of curious for myself about your story. So you you moved to California. What what year was it when you went there initially? That was about um, about seventy eight, and I um, I. Uh, I didn't. I literally didn't know a person in California, yeah. and so it was all new. And uh, I, the only thing I had going for me coming out of college was uh, was good grades. And so when I came to California, um, a thing to just kind of get me organized in California was I was a, a tutor for a fraternity at USC, and um, and uh, the. The 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 uh, gift of all that was met many friends for life, you know, through those days. But while I was there, it was a way to just kind of get situated, and um, and then I uh, had a chance to itch around and and you know try to look for jobs. And um, the the, uh, the 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 lucky break I got was a. a a kid that I taught tennis lessons to in Chicago. I was a tennis player. Uh, um, his his dad was a fraternity brother of Gary Marshall's, mm. and and so it was just enough to at least get me an interview uh, with with uh, Gary Marshall, who at the time had <clears throat> I think it was four shows in the top ten at the time at Paramount, and and I met with with uh, with Gary Marshall. And uh, like a good Midwesterner, was overdressed and was probably about 100 degrees in the middle of the summer. <laughs> and um, and uh, when I walked in, uh, uh, and the beauty of Gary, who there's nobody I love more than, than Gary Marshall, he always kind of talked like he had a, a, a lobotomy. <laughs> um, and he, he said he, he had a picture of a... Of a uh, of a of his tennis court, that, and he and he said to me, I as I kind of walked in, he said, I got no life, my I got a new tennis court, I don't I never get to play because I'm running these shows, <laughs> uh, 
And so what do you got? And then we did our interview, and I could tell that was going nowhere, and I wasn't going to get a job, and walked out of there. And um, and in the waiting room, there was this kid that um, he was sort of next up to to for an interview, and uh, and he and he looked at me, and the only thing I remember were the number of pimples that were on, was on his face. And he said to me as I walked by, nice outfit, uh, mocking the, the fact I was so <laughs> overdressed. That's funny. And only because he insulted me, I walked right back into Gary Marshall's office, and he was already on the phone. And I, uh, and I said, Mr. Marshall, um, um, I've, uh, I've got something that I can give you that, that nobody on the Paramount um, lot can. And uh, only because I was so brazen... He uh, he said to the guy who he was talking to on the phone already. He said, "Let me call you back." And he looked over at me and said, "So what? What would that be?" What you got? And he didn't my he didn't even remember my name by that time. <laughs> and and I said, "I can give you a life. I'll see you at your tennis court at your house this Saturday at ten, and I'm going to give you a 55 minute tennis lesson, and you're going to give me a five minute writing lesson." Wow. And he looked at me got up from his desk, walked over and shook my hand and said, you got a deal. <laughs> That's and, so cool. Uh, and we did that. Uh, we did that. And next week was 10 minutes of writing session. And then a couple of weeks later, it was raining and he said, come over anyways. And, and, uh, and we just did the writing. And, uh, and from there he was, you know, gave me a, it was a foot in the door and a shot to, uh, you know, to to get something going on in the entertainment world. So that's how I kind of really got the the ball rolling in L.A. That's such an incredible story. So, so, and then you started actually writing for Happy Days from that. Yeah, the, the, the beauty was is that um, you know, as a as a knucklehead kid, I was 22. You had nothing to lose, so you just you know you just you just pot shotting as many things as you can to try to get things going on and um and with one of those things was um with with songs i was just you know trying to write songs for some of the different episodes and uh uh and the first one that i got a chance to do it actually was an episode that i wrote and it was this uh, silly episode about Patsy having struck trouble uh um uh, learning about the circulatory in schoolwork, and he had a test about the circulatory system, and he couldn't. Um, he could, and so Fonzie said, "Why don't you write a song about it? That the way you'll remember it." <laughs> and so, in the episode, so I wrote this stupid song called "Pumps Your Blood," that was that was you know the song that Patsy sang in his class, and it was and. There was a day that uh, I had to go in to, to you know, on the Happy Day set and, and in uh, Anson Williams' dressing room play him the song Pumps Your Blood, which the chorus literally says the word pump like 25 times in a row. And he looked up at me and said, there's no way in hell I'm singing that song on national television. <laughs> and, uh it ended up being fabulous in the show. It, we had um, I ended up recording it with it was with Ron Howard and and Henry Winkler and you know the whole cast, 
all kind of marching around the room, and Donnie Most marching around the room singing this Pumps Your Blood song. And it turned out, it was, you know, it worked out great. And then the, the fun of it was, it ended up being the uh, Heart Association song. Uh, uh, and then they, it, it sort of took on another whole life. It's been in a zillion. Um, kids have used it in high schools, and teachers have had it in high schools and colleges, uh, grammar schools, um, ever since then. And uh, there's been... On the internet, a zillion videos of kids singing this silly song, and uh, it was just on. Um, it was just uh, um, uh, um, um, St. Joseph's Aspirin's uh, commercial that they did, that won a bunch of awards for them. So wow. it just sort of taught me the lesson of you never know where something positive can come from, but I sure as hell never thought uh, I'd get my songwriting life going, writing a song called Pumps Your Blood. That's so and, funny. So it just sort of took on a, a life of its own. Yeah. And then from that, um, I just started writing a bunch of songs for for Paramount shows and Happy Days. And, and uh, while doing that at the time, I was scoring a bunch of TV shows and um and and then it just kind of got the ball rolling and like everything it's just you know the thing that i learned learned early on is that uh you know that it's you have to run those two parallel lives of both your artistic life um uh in my case as a songwriter yeah. um, but also your business life and on the business side of life, you know, it's about networking and creating relationships and 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 selling, you know, my songs. Yeah. And and so fortunately, during those years, it was, you know, it was about aggressively getting songs into lots of different shows and cuts by different people and just, you know, meeting lots of folks in L.A. and Nashville and New York and trying to stir the pot. So when you went to L.A. initially in 78, did you go there with the intention of making it in the music business? You obviously met Gary Marshall and started writing on Happy Days. But like, what was your goal when you went there initially? What did you did you go there to make it in music? That's a great question. It really was it. it songwriting was my intention, but it really was about storytelling. My my uh, my background uh, was in journalism. Um, I mean, both in terms of an education and also just, you know, writing on a lot of different papers and stuff before then. And so the art of storytelling really was the thing that was interesting to me. And I'd have to say as a through line now in projects that I've done both in the music world and in the television world and, and now even in the corporate world and the branding world, the through line is really the art of telling a story. And and I think that as an old uh, songwriting collaborator of mine from Nashville, Rory Burke once said that, you know, that with a song, the thing that makes it so unique and such an incredibly fun and challenging uh, artistic exercise is you have three minutes to try to emotionally move somebody, a complete stranger, in in some way. And that might be to emotionally, you know, bring them to tears. It might be to to wind them up. It's but it's to do something emotionally in three minutes. Yeah. And um and I think that 
that challenge of of in as a song um, and the art of songwriting is the thing that was the sort of the rudder of all things creatively, you know, for me at a young age, and and still is the most uh, is the thing I treasure most of anything artistically is how to to uh, to write, you know, that 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 three minute song. Yeah, how to really tell a story, convey emotion, and and kind of captivate people within that th- three minute time frame. So your story is, is so interesting to me, and when I hear stories, you know, like yours, it they seem so remarkable. You know, you you went to L.A., you're a young guy, you were obviously ambitious and and confident, and you connected with the right people. I'm like, what do you think of L.A. now in 2017 compared to when you went out there for the first time in '78? Do you think your story is possible? today do you think it's harder today do you like how has la changed from your perspective during the last 30 years god i think that's such a great question i i think that the um i think that the the i think the one i think it's very different um you know part of it is just the matrix of of um of where the dollar is in music now yeah and you know where at that time you know there really was a community of songwriters we all had publishing deals with Warner Chapel and and Universal and you know and Sony and different places and 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 there really was a sense of community of all of those folks during those days that were songwriters in LA and and then we all also were collaborating with all the folks down in Nashville um those days are you know are it's just completely different now um and i think that with in a um you know it, it, in those days uh it was sort of the opposite in terms of where the where the money was in the in the record industry then the industry was about um how do you uh how do you give away concerts for free to and basically the concerts were the collateral hmm. to get people to buy records and CDs yeah. and and now it's the opposite now you know uh, music uh, the songs are collateral to really get you to buy concert tickets and you know where the thing that that um, was always fascinating to me over the last 15 years was was watching how music, um, you know, became a utility that, uh, um, that, uh, you know, that a real, um, uh, um, um, inflection point to me was, I remember when it was, I think it was Sprint and, and T-Mobile at the time, but they were giving away, um, any song you wanted, uh, t- uh, to download, um, if you signed up for their, you know, for their uh, cell phone service, and mm. that was to me the point when music became a utility. It became something that that um, you know that that didn't have the same value from a financial perspective as it did in the past. Yeah. And you know, where I always thought to myself in those moments. So T-Mobile is basically saying to me, 
if it were like the old days, you could drive up to your local record store and basically with a wheelbarrow put every single record in the entire store in your wheelbarrow and go home and then come back the next day and do the same thing. And hmm. and that is when you know the music industry, from a financial perspective, really shifted. The positive thing is that the music industry today has never been more alive. It's never been more exciting. There's never been more opportunity. And so, to me, if there's a young person getting in the business now, it couldn't be a better time. It's fantastic, but it just takes different skills. If somebody just wants to be a songwriter. In 2018, I think that's a real challenge. But if somebody is paying attention and looking around at all of the incredible opportunities and variations on businesses around music and songwriting and producing, it's astounding. And the stuff that's going on right now because of Spotify, because of Pandora, because of of of, uh, of everything that has to do with music and licensing and brand relationships. It's fantastic if somebody has the chutzpah and the, the, the fire to really to, to, you know, to see opportunities. And when I say that, I, I think of this incredibly dumb interview that I saw a million years ago and it was this guy from Baywatch, David Hasselhoff, and he was on this interview, and the guy said, do you think you're, you know, with your career being successful, do you think you're just lucky? And he said, I don't think I'm lucky. He said, I think I just have the innate ability to smell an opportunity when it's in front of me. Hmm. And so to me, the challenge with a young songwriter today is can they smell an opportunity? Can they not be too ahead of the curve where they're chasing something that doesn't have an economic model yet, but can they see enough into the future, just enough, and get on that train? And that, to me, is, the, is the, both the, the excitement and the fun and the challenge and the energy right now of all things as it relates to music and entertainment. So as as I'm listening to your response, like a part of me is like lighting up and I'm and I'm getting really excited and I'm like, yes, like like what you're saying is true. It's resonating with me. But at the same time, I'm wondering, like if let me put it this way, if you were 22 now in 2017 and you were going to move to L.A. or Nashville or New York or whatever, what would your focus be like? Like where are the opportunities specifically as as you see it? I think I think that it's so important, especially in LA, because it's such a harsh town. And I always think of it, you know, of being a songwriter. It's it's I've always been fascinated with the circus when they you know they climb up on a on a on a uh, the the guys that are on the tight ropes mm-hmm. and where they, they seem like the fun that they were always selling in the circus was you know if the guy's up high enough. And he doesn't have a not net, you know. It's it's like it's more interesting. Yeah. I I never thought that way. But the but the thing that always struck me with that analogy is that songwriting has no net. If you don't if you don't make it in that, there's no catch underneath you. Yeah. And 
and that where most industries have a catch. And, you know, you can be a pretty mediocre, uh, um, you know, uh, barber in a small town in the Midwest, and you can have a wonderful life. Yeah. There is no such thing as a mediocrely successful songwriter. You're either, it either works or it doesn't. Yeah. There's no net. And so if, to me, a really important thing, I think, as a young person getting into the arts, and that doesn't make a difference if it's songwriting or acting or pick one, is to create a sense of community. And that doesn't necessarily have to be as a songwriter. I was so lucky to find that community in television. But it could be anything. And as a parallel thought to that, Aaron, I always think that a thing that I think sometimes I find that, that, you know, folks coming out of college, they're selling that piece of paper. They're selling where you graduated from or something or the degree you got. Nobody cares in a contemporary world. Right. They care what skills you have. And, you know, for me, uh, where I first had to taste that in the real life was it was in Kentucky, where I, in Lexington, Kentucky, where I went to school. And, um, and I, there was a little dinky advertising um, studio in town. And, uh, and I went to apply for an internship at, then there. And the guy who spent most of the time um, smoking dope in his in his in his one person studio uh, said he really wasn't interested in a in a, um, a in a, you know an intern. And the thing I noticed around the room is it was just stuffed with diet coke cans everywhere. <laughs> it was a pig pen. So. As I was walking out of that place thinking I'm not going to get the, the internship, I said to him, but I do, I have another thing that I'm really skillful at. And he said, what was that? And I said, I'm a fantastic cleaning lady. <laughs> and I really am good at putting all these Coke bottles in a, in a bag and bringing out to the dumpster out there and then doing it all over again. And he said, you got a job to do that. That sounds great. Be my cleaning lady. But... <laughs> That was my skill. The only skill I had was I was a cleaning lady for the guy. He didn't. He wasn't interested in me being a songwriter. Yeah. But by being a cleaning lady, a week later, the guy that was singing the background vocals didn't show up. Next thing you know, I'm doing that. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm playing keyboards on a thing. And next thing you know, the guy wanted to spend more time watching the Cincinnati Red games in the other room smoking dope. So I'm just producing the whole session. And after about a month and a half, I said to the guy, I'll make you a deal. I'll take, I'll take 60%, you'll take 40 and I'll do everything. I'll, I'll record, I'll write and produce everything. Yeah. And it was a great way to learn, you know, the, the business of, of songwriting and, and recording in this little dinky studio. But the only way I got the opportunity was by, was by listening to what his needs were. Yeah, and his needs yeah. weren't to have a songwriter on the job. His needs were to have a cleaning lady, and so you know, I think a a a trick to me with anything, like especially in this world of music and branding, is how do you identify with a company? How do you identify with somebody that could use music 
to their benefit and that who's currently not using it. And if you can figure that out and then you can get, you know, to somebody, the right person, you've got a lot to offer them. And for me, there's so much opportunity right now in the world of, of brands and music and how those two things relate to each other. So it sounds to me like, if I'm interpreting your story correctly, it sounds to me what you're saying is, is that artists and, and people in general should humble themselves a little bit, figure out where they can add value, where they can really help, even if it's not necessarily doing exactly what they want to do, but figure out a way to be valuable so they, so they can build relationships and build connections instead of just going straight to the CEO of a record label and, and saying, sign me today is, is is that sort of the moral of the story i would never go i wouldn't even want to set an intention around going to the head of a record label to say sign me today in no man you know, i mean under any circumstances yeah. but uh but i think that i mean i think that train has left the station for a young person there's just that's not the path to me at all. So, so, so uh, maybe, in, maybe instead. Sorry to interrupt you. Maybe instead of that example, going straight to a, a major music supervisor or something. I mean, it sounds to me what right. you're saying like in way better, way yeah, better. Yeah. So it sounds to me like in both stories, the story you told me about the record, uh, the studio in Kentucky, and your story with Gary Marshall is that in both cases, you didn't necessarily start out doing exactly what you wanted to do, but no. you, you figured out a way to add value. To, uh, to to these people that, that developed into real relationships. Yeah, and they created a community. They created a, a home, and a, they created a place where then I could I could operate from. Yeah. In one case, a studio, a, a you know little recording studio, and to create relationships there. And in the other case, it was you know through a um, you know Paramount and the, the arms of that, um, but. I think that's really the key is 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 being in something that allows you you know a chance to accelerate and you know I'm finding it with um, with some young folks that I've been so lucky to be um, uh, doing some work with recently, but they're the thing that's a through line to me is 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 when young people during their days, like if they if they take the college route, but that while they were going to college, created a tremendous skill, and then and then by the time they kind of were ready to get into the business world, they had a skill to sell. It wasn't an education; it was a skill. Yeah. And uh, you know, one guy uh, graduated from USC, and he had five million people on a YouTube site. Where he was this curator of of EDM music, and he was able to parlay that into all kinds of interesting things. And now at 25, he's killing it because of that. Um, another got into the art of of um, drone drone of of drones and and shooting videos. He's 24 and frigging killing it. Yeah, but. It's it's a step in. It's a it's a it's a door, and once you're in that door of something, I think then you have the chance to 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 really figure out how you can do your craft and you know as a songwriter or or you know whatever that whatever that is. Cool. So let's um, 
Do you have about 10 more minutes? We're at about 35, but I, I wanted to ask you a few questions about licensing and, and Inspire. Can we go a, another 10 minutes or so? Yeah, sure. Excellent. No, this is this is good stuff. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about licensing. So Inspire Inter- Entertainment. I know you've done a lot of ad work and a lot of licensing work. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of music you're looking for, the kind of artists you like to work with, and how you find music? Like, how do you find the artists that you end up signing? Um, well, with Inspire, we're not really signing artists as much as we. It's really about finding relationships with um, with brands that um, you know that um, we're we're. I always find Aaron that with anything on the brand side, I'm always making two sells. Mm-hmm. One is is convincing a company that music is a way that they can either make money or emotionally fortify their brand. And then the second sell is Pick Inspire. Um, yeah. Oddly, the Pick Inspire is the easier one because they're already vested in, in, you know, in the process. But the trick is really convincing them music is something that's worth spending money on to, to express your brand. And I so passionately believe in the power of music to express people's brands and, and companies and things like that. And so, as an example, with um, uh, I've been um, our company has been writing a number of alma maters for schools recently. We did we've written we wrote a school song for SMU um, down in Dallas. Um, I recently wrote the alma mater for UC Merced um, up in Merced, which is the new state school in California. Um, and just a bunch of different schools uh, where, um, you know, where they call it a school song or an alma mater. For me, I'm really just creating a brand anthem. I'm using music to emotionally express their brand that ultimately um, translates into fundraising dollars and all kinds of positive things for them. Yeah. And, you know, and my sense is, especially with the Internet today, it just boggles my mind that you can go on, uh, you know, Knowles Bagels or pick a company, and there's no sound. There's no music. Yeah. And and if I were a betting man over this next decade, that's going to shift. And and if I, if I had to guess, and I think a great opportunity for young composers is finding ways to partner with companies and infuse music into those companies, and 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 to me, then it's about just doing it better than everybody else. Now, with Inspire, are you working with other artists? Or are you writing? I know you're obviously supplying some of the music, but do, are you working with other artists as well? Yeah, I am. We've been. It just depends on the project. So, as an example, we had a wine client that wanted to cater to a. Uh, you know, a young, a 20-something crowd, uh, and they wanted a, um, and they wanted the music to reflect that audience. Um, it was a New Zealand company. So with that, um, we hired a couple composers to then do that because they were the right guys for the job, not me. Yeah. And so yeah, you know, but I'd say with any of the things we're working on, whether it's songwriters, whether it's um, engineers, um, musicians, 
you know, an ever challenge is always just to find fantastically talented singers and especially singers um, and musicians, you know, for different projects. And what do you, what are your thoughts? Like a few days ago, I guess a week or so ago, I wrote a blog post sort of about the challenges of, of being creative in the context of licensing. And I think back to like the 60s and 70s and, and this era of music when, when there was just so much creativity. And, and like we were talking about before we started recording about how, how all the changes the music business has gone through. Do you find it a challenge to, to be creative and maintain? I mean, it sounds like you're very passionate about what you do. But is it as exciting to to write for these types of projects as it is to write for Whitney Houston or any of these these artists that you've written for? I think that's a great question. I think for me, to be honest, it's being respectful and reverent to your age and just who you are. Yeah. And and for me, I'm trying I'm trying to do that with you know with the creative work that I'm doing, and not to try to pretend to be there's a right for something that's not, you know, that I have no business writing for. And, but where in the same way, I, and then, I, but on to, you know, in terms of the a thing of, is it as creative now, you know, as in past years or, you know, or the opportunities for anybody to be as creative. I think it's more so because I think in, you know, with contemporary songwriting, um, it's, it's about can you express that you know there's that that uh it can you express that moment can you can you actually can you speak to the moment and the time and whether that's you know getting that song to an artist or whether that's as a singer songwriter or whether that's for a brand i just think that the hunger of those buyers in all of those cases is the same they're looking for something that is so unique and creative and exceptional and and I you know and I the only thing in that way that I would suggest to any young songwriter is to to be so push yourself to go contrarian go opposite go do anything to be distinctive and unique and and to as um, I think it was Aristotle that said, you know, capture the essence of you, and that if you can do that, if you can capture how fantastic and interesting and provocative and exciting you are, people will be so drawn to that, and and that to me is the goal line, not to try to write for the, uh, to not to try to, you know, to to write for somebody else necessarily. Yeah, no, this is actually a theme that's come up over and over and over on, on the last, like pretty much the, the, like all year, like on all the podcasts that I do. And it's it's really refreshing to me, this idea that at the end of the day, music supervisors and music publishers, like people working in this business in general, love music. They have a passion for music. So I think it's easy to get cynical and think that you have to write within this very narrow sort of narrowly defined box but the but what i'm actually hearing is the opposite that you need to be unique and and creative and and interesting and even though in the context of licensing the music needs to work for whatever it's being synced to there's still this element of creativity that's really important it's i think it's both being i think the challenge for songwriters is to both be 
creatively smart on the artistic side and creatively smart on the on the business side. Yeah. And as as uh, an old um, as somebody said to me one time about you know about entertainment is that uh, the guys that are successful the guys that are great in business or the guys that are great as you know artistically, and the answer is is guys that are the guys and men and women that are great artistically and are great in business, but they both have to be great. They both have to be strong, and you know and I always look to you know folks today that are killing it, um, Taylor Swift. Uh, Beyonce, you know, pick one. There, can you imagine the schedule that Taylor Swift has in a given day, and and how challenging it is for her to balance art and business and yeah. everything she's doing. And and the truth of the matter is, we all should take note of that, and we all should push ourselves to have that schedule, regardless of what we have on our plate to you know to emulate that work ethic and that 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 balance of business and, and art yeah and she started really really young too i i interviewed her former manager rick barker i think it was last, uh. last year for my podcast and he said she started i mean she started writing songs when she was like 13 moved to nashville when oh she my was God. 14 so she's been hitting it hard for a long time and obviously there's elements yeah. of, of luck and she's attractive and in all of that but it's it's undeniable that she works really really hard at this it works hard and you know and the other thing is and i do think a thing to, to that you know you i think spoke to Aaron, with all songwriters and and creative people is it, there's a i think the reason that we're all drawn to this stuff in life and this career path it matters and, yeah. and I believe more than ever, with especially with what's you know just the sort of the state of affairs of the country and the world, music matters. It's Absolutely. so important, and it's a it 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 it's so it's it's. I just think that the the art of music, the art of creating a song, of of scoring anything that touches music, is such a valuable gift to the world. That everybody that does it has such an opportunity to to plant those seeds in their own communities in their own worlds. Yes, and it's how lucky we are that we're privileged to you know to be pursuing something that is both so fun to do, but that we feel really makes a difference in the world. Absolutely, yeah. I mean that that's without a doubt. That's why I'm compelled to do things like this podcast and 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 to bring people like you to my listeners is because I just feel like music innately, inherently, there's something magical about it. And I feel like the challenge for people that want to do this professionally is like we've been talking about balancing the business side with the creative side, and and it's it's a huge task. Like it's not an easy feat, but I feel like yeah, like you said, there's just something innately valuable about music and um i feel like people that are inspired to do it should figure out how, how to do it and that's kind of what i'm trying to do with my podcast and website is to to teach people and help people figure out the formula well you're the aaron you're the poster child you're doing everything we're talking about you're you're you know you you figured out that I, I can't imagine when you were, you know, when you were 15, there wasn't even such a thing as a podcast. Yeah, right. And, and figured out along your journey 
this is a real interesting vehicle to create a sense of community, to 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 do something of tremendous value to you know to the music community, and to get things cooking. And here you're doing it in a spectacular way. So, you know, cheers to you. I mean, it's fantastic what you're doing. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. Yeah, it, it never ceases to amaze me. Like the fact that I can email someone like you and a week later be on the phone or on Skype connecting with you, hearing your story. Like it's it's just, you know, it's truly amazing what what the Internet offers in terms of connectivity. So on that note, um, thank you so much for doing this. This has been a very enlightening conversation. And Thanks. before we say goodbye, let's tell people where they can learn more about you and Great. your music and your work. Should we send them to inspireentertainment.com? That's your. That name. sounds perfect. Excellent. So Jimmy's website is inspireentertainment.com. Go check out what he's up to at Inspire. And um, what I normally do at the end of each podcast is I play a song from whoever the guest is do you have a, a track a recent track or can be an older track but any track in particular that comes to mind that we can play at the end of this so people can hear one of your tracks whatever you'd like maybe the uh the um uh, nobody loves me like you do might be something um or i can send you from the branding world you know maybe an alma mater since we we're talking so much about brand stuff um, but maybe one of those might be a thing. Why don't we do both? Why don't we'll start with Nobody Loves Me, uh, and then we'll g go into one of the branding tracks. So we'll we'll do two at the end. That sounds great, Aaron. I'm I'm honored to have to uh, spend this time with you and uh, and your your folks, and and uh, I just wish you so well. I think this podcasting world is. So exciting and so interesting, and uh, sounds like you're you're hitting a nerve with this. Well, th yeah, like I said, thanks again for doing this. I really appreciate it. It's a sincere pleasure to speak with you. And um, like I said, or I think I told you, I'm going to be out in LA for a couple of weeks next month. So I'll send you an email. Maybe there's there's a, a chance we can grab a cup of coffee or something. Happy to do it. Love it. It'd be uh, great. Excellent, Jimmy. Thanks so much for doing this. Have a wonderful day, and we'll talk soon. Thanks a lot. See you later. Yep, take care. Okay, everybody. So I hope you guys enjoyed the podcast uh, that I did with Jimmy Dunn. I thought that was a really good episode. I got a lot out of it. I learned a lot, and I hope you did as well. So after the podcast, I emailed back and forth with, with Jimmy, and we decided instead of featuring two songs, we would feature just one. So the song I'm going to feature is Nobody Loves Me Like You Do. This was written, obviously, by James Dunn and co-written by Pamela Phillips. And recorded originally by Canadian country music artist Anne Murray and singer-songwriter Dave Loggins. It was a duet. It was released in August of 1984 as the first single from the album Heart Over Mind. The track was also covered by Whitney Houston and Jermaine Jackson on Houston's 1985 self-titled debut album. Um, this song, Nobody Loves Me Like You Do, went number one on the Canadian RPM Country Tracks chart, the Canadian RPM Adult Contemporary Tracks chart, as well as the U.S. Hot Country Songs Billboard chart. So, without further ado, this is Nobody Loves Me Like You Do, and this version that I'm going to play is the Whitney Houston and Jermaine Jackson version. 
Every day 